Let's turn to uh, Hosea chapter 9. The book of Hosea, or in the Hebrew, Hosea, and uh, chapter 9. Hosea comes right after Daniel in the prophets. Hosea is considered the first of the minor prophets, minor not in content, but uh, just the fact that it's uh, the, the minor prophets are smaller books, smaller letters or prophecies. Hosea 9, beginning at verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy as other people. For thou hast gone a-whoring from thy God, thou hast loved a reward upon every corn floor. The floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, neither shall they be pleasing unto him. Their sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners. All that eat thereof shall be polluted, for their bread for their soul shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the solemn day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up, Memphis shall bury them, the pleasant places for their silver, nettles shall possess them, thorns shall be in their tabernacles. Now it needs to be remembered, of course, that <clears throat> the book of Hosea is a prophecy against the rebellion and disobedience of the northern kingdom of Israel back in the uh, 8th century BC and um, the northern kingdom itself had begun really as we said last time you know the Lord brought about the the split of the nation of Israel between the northern and the southern kingdom he caused that to happen but it was caused by the sin of Solomon. And of course, you know, you can go back to even David, you know, in the, in the situations that, that, had, uh, that he had prompted, you know, uh, how the people were going to come against him because of his, his own sin before Solomon. But one thing that David never did was he never worshiped idols. Solomon did. And so a lot of this was just leading up to this, this grand division and God had brought that about for reasons of judgment. But the northern kingdom, <clears throat> when it could have had a good king, fell completely and, and immediately into the sin of idolatry. And Jeroboam II was the one that brought them into that idolatry. Putting of golden calves both in Bethel in the southern part of the northern kingdom and in Dan which is the northern part of the northern kingdom. All of this we talked about last time. So the prophet Hosea was at the very beginning of the book of course is, is, is told to marry a prostitute because this is what the people did. They prostituted themselves and committed spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery against the Lord. They were to be married to their God who loved them and would care for them and would provide for them for their every need, but they, they fell away. So there was this object lesson in the marriage of Hosea to Gomer, who was a prostitute. Of course, that got settled rather relatively quickly, but what we've been seeing later 
is this need for the Lord to make it clear to the northern kingdom that they are going to be judged. And they've gone through that process of being judged almost as if in a court of law, and that being in God's court of law. So in chapter 8 of Hosea, which is where we were last time, the last two uh, studies, the Lord laid out the pronouncement of the judgment that was to be served and, and executed upon the northern kingdom of Israel. It would first of all commence with the attack by Assyria. So Assyria was going to invade the northern kingdom of Israel, which means, of course, it would come with a sword. Now Israel could try to stand up against them, but that would that wasn't going to be able that, that wasn't going to be possible. I mean, from the standpoint of the power of the Assyrian army, and of course, the shambles that was the nation of, of Israel or the northern kingdom of Israel. So it would begin with the attack of, the, of Assyria. Second, there would be oppression and suffering for, because they sowed the wind and reaped the whirlwind. And, the, and then for depending on other nations rather than depending on the Lord. Remember, they were trying to have treaties with Assyria from time to time and even Egypt. And they would go to Egypt and try to have these uh, uh, treaties so that they could uh, kind of benefit from someone else protecting them. What were they doing with God? They were telling God, we don't need you. And therefore, the Lord was taking them through this oppression and suffering. But think about it. That's what happens when we cut ties with God. It's not so much that he puts any kind of weight of oppression on us. We fall into it ourselves. It's always that way that our sins, that when we fall into them, we fall into them ourselves. As we've oftentimes said, that principle that you dig a hole to bury somebody else in is the very hole that you're going to bury yourself in. You dig it for someone else, and you're going to fall into it yourself. The third uh, thing was that they were going to go into bondage as an illustration of being enslaved to sin. Their bondage under Assyria means that they had been slaves to sin all along. They had not taken dominion over sin, sin had taken dominion over them. Now, with those words in mind, think about what Paul was saying to us in the, in the, in the book of Romans, chapter 6 and 7, when he talks about the fact that we are not to let sin dominate our lives. It is not to have dominion over us. The fourth thing is that destruction was going to come by fire, for having forgotten their maker. Now these are all things that we, fall, that we saw in chapter 8. So you can could, you could kind of almost follow along here toward the end of that chapter. And as we now enter into chapter 9, there is a fifth punishment that is revealed. And that is that Israel would be taken into exile and banished from God. Now listen, that's, that's pretty heavy. That the people are going to be banished from God and banished from the promised land, taken out of the land of promise. Now who made the promise? God promised them the land. But the covenant was that they were to be obedient to him. They would have to suffer hunger in this banishment. They would suffer defilement and they would suffer death. The prophet Hosea was using very descriptive language. It was actually the Lord through the prophet. But nonetheless, it is a prophet that's speaking here. When you look at the, pro the pronouns are very important when you, when you see who's, who's speaking. But the prophet Hosea was using very descriptive language to explain the reason for Israel's exile. Notice what it says there in verse 1. For thou hast gone a whoring from, which means thou hast gone to play the prostitute against thy God. Playing the prostitute against thy God. And then the next phrase, thou hast loved a reward. Interesting phrase because it means that they love the wages of a harlot. They love the wages of a harlot upon every corn floor, which is just a, a threshing floor. They love the wages of a harlot on every threshing floor. 
And by the way, that would also include wine presses, as we'll see in just a moment. But the understanding is that the people were experiencing some level of prosperity. Now, we've talked about that already. As the, the northern kingdom of Israel, they, they had experienced for a time certain prosperity, a, a type of prosperity that was very similar to the prosperity of other nations. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be like the other nations. Therefore, to be like the other nations, they embraced the, nations, uh, the, the gods of the other nations. Or at least if they didn't embrace their gods, they embraced the style or the practice of worship that they would apply to the gods that they were worshiping, which of course were the golden calves. But they were actually experiencing some level of prosperity. What happens when man gets that thinking that they get it, they get it without God's help? What happens? I, I mean, they're deceiving themselves. That's what the Bible says. So they were deceiving themselves into thinking, wow, worshiping these golden calves is really paying off. It's really good. I like them cows. They were reaping a fairly bountiful harvest. But they weren't to be rejoicing. That's why the, the verse 1 says, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy as other people. Don't rejoice. They weren't to be rejoicing or being jubilant because of it. Rejoicing of that sort was for other nations and peoples, not for them. They were rejoicing in the wrong way and rejoicing based upon a different way. And here's the reason. They were attributing their harvest and their prosperity to those false gods. They were attributing their harvest and prosperity to the false gods and not to the Lord. And the Lord says, you shouldn't be rejoicing. They were outwardly showing their unfaithfulness to the one true God. Turning away from him and giving themselves in the worst ways to the gods of this world. You know, that's something that all of us have to be very careful of. Even in this day and time. We have to be careful of giving ourselves to the gods of this world. And they're all around us. Some of those gods can be material things, material things that you can touch, feel, possess. But there are other gods in the world. They're the, they're, there's the god of success. There's the God of entertainment. There's, there's the God of finances. There's all kinds of gods. And all of them are designed to take us away from the one true God. In some way, take us away from the one true God. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul said that we live, that we are now living in the last days and the last days are perilous times. And he uses a word, perilous, that means dangerous and, and, and it means insane. And I don't know about you, but man, we are living in insane times in our country today. And what we see happening politically, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. By, by, the, by the rhetoric. There's a lot of wickedness in politics today. Even in our local politics. I will tell you one thing. Too many people have been fooled into believing in something called choice. But my Bible says, as your Bible says, that we are to be people of life. And when life is taken, like the 60 million babies that have been aborted, that, and to, and to say, 
and, and to say, well, people who have a right, people, women have a right to choose that, right? Really? It burdens my heart. Now, I thank God, and I believe this from the scriptures as well, that every one of those 60 million babies are, are in heaven with the Lord. But that's not the way to do it. God is a God of life. And the scripture says, from the, word, from the very mouth of the Lord himself, choose life. Choose life. That's just one little issue, just one little thing. But it brings deception about everything else. What about when people want to, you know, say, well, I, you know, I want to be something else that I, than I am. Really? You're only, one of, you're only one of two things. You're either a male or a female, because that's what the Bible says. That's the way God designed us. That's it. Today, you know, people say they want to be this or they want to be that. Or even if they just say, you know, I, I believe that this is what I am, then you have to accept that. I'm not going to accept it. I accept what I see. Not what you think you are or what you want to be. What these, are, what these are are deceptions. Jesus warned, about, warned, them, warned us about them. The apostles warned us about them. The prophets warned us about these deceptions. We'll see it as we get into the word a little bit more today. But these are the false gods that are, that are taking people's minds and hearts away from the true and living God and away from the one Messiah, the one Savior, the one Lord who Jesus is, who came to die on our behalf because we're sinners. Back in Israel, and I've got to go on here because if not, I'll be here till 11 tonight. There was a heaviness hanging over the land. It was the heaviness of guilt over their spiritual adultery. And don't forget that this rejoicing and giving of thanks for the harvest at their threshing floors involved engaging actually in, in fertility rituals right inside those wine presses, right inside those threshing floors, praising the false gods for their bounty. That, of course, involves sexual rituals with religious prostitutes. And we've talked about that already, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But it was through those encounters that the worshipers sought to express their gratitude for fruitful crops and for any increase in their livestock, in their wealth, or in their prosperity. But without hesitation, the Lord pronounced his judgment upon his own people for this unfaithfulness, both sexual and spiritual. And first, the people would no longer enjoy the fruitful land promised by God. Look at verse 2. The floor and the winepress shall not feed them and the new wine shall fail in her. So because of the people's regard for the, uh, disregard, I should say, for the laws and commandments of God, not to mention uh, their disregard of the covenant with God, and due to the fact that their orgies and their unfaithfulness to the Lord had corrupted the land, the land would no longer provide prosperity for the people. And they would not even have enough food for them to eat. And then they would be banished from God's land of promise. Verse 3, they shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. And what is Egypt? Egypt is a type of the world. Egypt is, the is a type of the world in Scripture. They are going to return to the world, but they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. And the Lord is using this language about Egypt and Assyria here to remind the people, hey, don't forget that for 430 years you were slaves in Egypt. You were slaves to the world. You were slaves to the world system until I delivered you and brought you out of Egypt 
and put you on the road to the land of promise. But going into Assyria, you are not going to eat like you ate before. Now you're going to eat unclean things. They would be held in bondage in Assyria as they had once been held captive in, in Egypt. They would be in Assyria. that They would have to eat unclean food. Let me, let me ask you a question. How clear is it that you reap what you sow? How clear is that principle from the scriptures? That you reap what you sow? I mean... Consider for a moment what the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Listen to what he says. He says, let him that, that is taught, and, and I, and I want to give you this whole passage for a reason, because it ties into our study in Hosea. But verse 6 says, let him that is taught in the word, take hold of that thought, taught in the word. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. If you're only sowing to the flesh, you're only going to reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Don't be weary in well-doing, because sowing seeds in well-doing. Don't, don't be weary about it. A farmer has to wait for seeds to take root. They have to, you know, there's a little planting, there's some rain, there's some watering, there's, there's all kinds of things that have to take place, but nonetheless, there's waiting. He says, don't be weary in, in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. In other words, if we're going to do good, we're going to do it to all men, but we're also going to do it especially to those that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, here's the connection to what's happening in, in, in the northern kingdom of Israel. The true prophets of God, along with the faithful Levites and priests, and I say the faithful ones, because there were a lot of unfaithful priests too, okay? Understand that. And remember this, the northern kingdom of Israel did not have their own, I mean, they had their own priesthood. They had to have been their own priesthood. They didn't have the kind of priesthood that God prescribed to have through the Levitical priesthood. They did their own thing. So understand that the true prophets, along with the faithful Levites and priests, and along with their words and their works, what was that? It was giving, them, giving the people the commandments of God and reminding them of the word of God. Well, they were forsaken by the people. But God was not mocked. The people sowed to their flesh and they reaped great corruption. There was no longer sharing in all good things. As they were supposed to do, by the way, to the priests. The priests were to take their tithes, their, their livestock, and, and the wave offerings and all, and they were to partake of that because they were serving them before the Lord as they were serving the Lord before the people. Do you see what I'm saying? Now they're no longer sharing in, in all good things. They're trying to get rid of the good prophets. They don't have the proper priesthood. There was no longer any well-doing. There was no doing good to all men. We know that because what, are, what were some of the indictments given by God to the people? You're going around stealing from your own people. You're going around murdering your own people. And you're committing all of these, all of these uh, uh, fornications and, and sexual sins. What do you expect? You reap what you sow. 
And they had sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind. Chapter 8, verse 7. And thirdly, the people would no longer have the opportunity to worship the Lord, even if they wanted to. They would not have the opportunity to worship the Lord in the promised land. Look at verse 4 of Hosea 9. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord. Neither shall they be pleasing unto him. Their sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners. All that eat thereof shall be polluted. For their bread for their soul shall not come into the house of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that all their rituals of worship, their offerings and their sacrifices would defile them simply because they would be forced to keep and to eat the bread that was to be offered as holy to the Lord. Just to keep from starving. Whatever was supposed to be given to the Lord, they took because they had nothing else. And since they wouldn't be able to offer the sacrifices that belonged to the Lord, their worship would be meaningless and unacceptable to God. Isn't that interesting? There's a price to pay in worshiping the Lord. And I'm not talking about those dumb, idiot charlatans that tell you, you know, you know if you give to me, you're going to become rich, you know. So if you want to get rich, you need to pay up. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that when you worship, you have to offer yourself. In fact, Paul tells us how, Romans chapter 12. He said at the very beginning of that chapter, I beseech thee, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer yourselves a living sacrifice unto the Lord. as your reasonable service of worship. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. We don't come before the Lord without a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to worship God. I thought of the beauty of, of this past Sunday, uh, Sunday afternoon at, at our baptism and, and uh, I'm not one who counts heads, you know, but there were a lot of people there to be with those who were baptized that day. And, and there was just this, this sense of the beauty of the presence of the Lord because we worship the Lord. And in that worshiping of the Lord, what we were saying to the Lord was, Lord, here we are. And especially those who were baptized, learning to realize that they were there, this, it was... It's a, serious, it's a serious thing to, to publicly give a confession of faith to Christ Jesus. It costs us something. But we know it costs Jesus everything. So to give, us of, to give of ourselves of something is the reason why worship is beautiful when it's done in the presence of the beauty of God's holiness. But not to offer any sacrifice before the Lord would be meaningless and unacceptable to God, as in the case with the northern kingdom of Israel, and all of that due to their sin of rebellion, disobedience, and hostility against the Lord God. They were actually being hostile toward God in worshiping other gods or in worshiping a false way. And then fourthly, the people wouldn't be able to celebrate. 
They wouldn't be able to celebrate the holy days of the Lord, and once again, due to their sin, which is why they would be exiled and banished from God's land. Look at verse 5 of Hosea 9. It says, what will you do in the solemn day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? Now you'll notice it says in the day of the feast of the Lord. This was more than likely the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was probably in view here because of its connection to harvest. Look at Leviticus, uh, turn to Leviticus chapter 23 and verses 39 to 44. Leviticus 23, 39 to 44, where it says, Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you shall have gathered in the fruit of the land. So what is that? That's the harvest. The gathering of the fruit of the land. You shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath. And on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of, of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And you shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in a year, in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. It is what you will do from now on. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, temporary shelters, seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. They dwelt in temporary dwelling places. They weren't home. And folks, we're not home yet. Whatever we have to dwell in today is a gift of the Lord. It's a blessing of the Lord, but it's as much a temporary booth as those that were made out of all of the foliage that they had to do, the branches of thick trees and whatnot. It's a reminder that we're passing through this world, this life is only temporary. He says, I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. But they weren't going to do that anymore. Banished from the Lord. Banished from the promised land. The Lord certainly would hear a cry if there were a cry that would rise up to his ears. Oh God, forgive us. Or as the cries of those that went on to Babylon a few years later and hung their harps on the trees in Babylon by the river and said, oh God, there's no joy. The joy's gone. All because of sin and disobedience and rebellion. And then, no matter how hard the people would try, the they were not going to be able to escape the judgment. They couldn't. Verse 6, For lo, they are gone because of destruction. They're gone because of spoil. That Literally, that word for destruction is, in the Hebrew is the word for spoil. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. In other words, if, if they happen to escape the sword of the Assyrians and run down to Egypt, Egypt will gather them, but then they'll end up being buried in the, in the necropolis that is known as Memphis. 
Memphis, I'm not talking about Memphis, Tennessee. All right, we're not talking about the South here. Memphis in Egypt, 20 kilometers south of Cairo, in the area where the where the Pharaoh of Giza, the Pharaohs of Giza, the the I should say the pyramids, I should say of Giza, are. A necropolis is a city of death. It's a city of cemeteries. The Egyptians were really much into death. I don't understand the, the, the mindset of so many people today who like death things, wearing all kinds of weird skeletons and all, you know. I understand that. I mean, again, our God is a God of life. And we should rejoice in, in the life that God's given us. Egypt is the world, Memphis is death. And notice he goes on and he says, The pleasant places for their silver, nettles shall possess them. Nettles or briars, you know, just weeds, you know, tumbleweeds. I guess we're, we're more familiar with tumbleweeds around here. Thorns shall be in their tabernacles. It's going to look like a Dodge City. Everybody left. Everybody's gone from Dodge. You know, it's a it's an empty city, empty town, ghost town. Couldn't remember ghost town. So if anybody happened to escape the sword, as I said, of the Assyrians during the initial invasion, well, they'd just be gathered up and end up in bondage in Egypt, and then they would probably just be deported to Memphis, uh, and, and there they would just be buried. And what would take place is their wealth and their homes, their tents, their livelihoods that they had left in Israel, that'd just be overrun by all of those things that we said earlier. So the Lord will, be, will, will just judge all the unfaithful of this earth. That, that is a sad thing. The Lord will judge all the unfaithful of this earth, both Jew and Gentile, all unfaithful. And sadly, that is what his people had become. His own people who should have known better, who should have known the word, who should have known the commandments and the laws of God, all of them had become unfaithful. Unfaithful to their God. And by the way, unfaithful to each other. Whether it was in their marriages or whether it was in their relationships. Remember, they killed each other. They stole from each other. They didn't care for anyone anymore except themselves. That's what happens when a person becomes unfaithful. So Paul did not hold back his admonition to the church in Corinth because there were some problems there. And I'm going, to just, I'm going to give you some lists that come out of the scriptures. Now the one list I'm not going to give you is Romans chapter 1. We've gone through that so many times. But you can go back to Romans chapter 1 later and read it again in, in light of the, the list of, of, of things that Paul is going to give us in, in these other passages. So let's start with 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, where it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, please listen to the seriousness of what Paul is saying in the New Testament. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, those who commit sexual sins, nor idolaters, which is what they all had become in the northern kingdom of Israel, nor adulterers, which they had become in the northern kingdom of Israel, nor effeminate. I don't think I have to explain that, do I? That's what we were talking about earlier. Changing the natural use of a person, which is in the book of Romans, chapter 1, to become what you're not. Effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. <clears throat> no inheritance, in other words, for those who commit these things and commit them willfully. And such were some of you. But, and this is the reason I'm adding this part. 
Some were such, uh, I should say, such were some of you. You were here in this list. But you are washed. Notice the tense. Now you are washed. But you are sanctified. Now you're set apart. But you are justified. Now you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this cannot be any of you to fall into the practice of any of those things listed in 1 Corinthians 6. But then we find another list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 26. And here it says, now the, the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Now notice, this is an important list, the works of the flesh. You want to know what the works of the flesh are? Listen to what they are. Starts with adultery. What was the problem in the northern kingdom of Israel? What did it lead to? Well, it comes to this. Look, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, all of those are sexual sins. Leading to what? Idolatry. Always connected to idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Variance. Emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, this is heavy duty. This is not a threat. This is a promise. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Man, you can be all of those things as much as you want. There's no law keeping you from doing those things. Loving. Rejoicing. Being at peace. Being patient. Being good. Showing God's grace. Being in self-control. Being gentle. No law against that. You can do all that you want. Anybody want to do that all you want? I think we should, don't you think? And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Which means what? If you've crucified it, then it's dead. If we live in the Spirit, here's the thing again about the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us, not, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, glory for self, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul gave another list in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. I've got to do this quicker now because of time. But Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 8, he says, but fornication, notice what it begins with, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Covetousness is important, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Let it not be named, once named among you as becometh saints. It should never be named of any of us, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking. There's a lot of that going on in the world today, but even in the church, a lot of foolish talking. Nor jesting, which are not convenient. They're not fitting for believers, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no whoremonger, which is what they had all become, whoremongers, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. There it is again. No inheritance. Do you think that Paul is serious about this? And then he says, Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. But not ye therefore, or I'm sorry, be not ye therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness. Now he says, here's where you were. You were sometimes darkness, but now are you light. In the Lord, walk as children of light. That's what we as believers are supposed to do. We're to be light. We're to walk in light. We're to walk in the Spirit. We're to walk by the Spirit. We're to walk controlled, in, in, in essence, by the Spirit. I want to add to these lists Paul's statement to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, and here's the reason I mentioned covetousness. 
earlier because he said, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Put to death, in other words, the members which are upon the earth. Notice what they are. Fornication, there it is again, uncleanness, inordinate affection, which is lust. Evil concupiscence, that's a fancy word, but it just means a covetous lust. Coveting, coveting, wanting what, what a person sees, just wanting it and going after it. And covetousness, again, Paul's driving home the point of what the heart covets that doesn't belong to that person, which is idolatry, by the way. Notice what he says, idolatry. Think about it in this term. You covet things, you've become the idol because you want everything to come to you. You've become God. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. You were there. That's what Paul was saying to all of those churches. Said it time and time and time again. But now you also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ needs to be all in and all for us. We don't need all that other stuff anymore because it needs to be crucified. All the affections, all the lust, crucified. But the list given to us by the Lord himself, not Paul, but the Lord himself is found in the book of Revelation and it should awaken us all. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> this is the last list I'm giving you tonight, I think. I think it's the last list. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To those who are thirsty, the Lord says, come and drink. But those who don't believe, and it begins with the fearful and the unbelieving, those who do not fear God in the proper manner, but fear God in not wanting to have any part of him. And the unbelieving, the abominable, and all those other things. They have lived in that and lived in it and lived in it they shall have part in the lake of fire. No, no, no salvation. And more than likely, no salvation to begin with. Could have been close. But that's what that thirst represents. When we began to thirst for Jesus Christ, And the Lord said, come. Then we come to take. And when he changes us, 
That doesn't mean we won't fight. The flesh will often battle the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. We talked about that also before. But there are just those who will refuse completely. Even if they've been close enough, they still have to believe. They still have to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that he's risen from the dead. Because that's where salvation comes. That's what we're told about salvation. Well, it all brings us back now to the sixth punishment, which is retribution. And Israel receiving just payment for its sins. Verses 7 through 9. We'll try to do this quickly because I don't have many, many minutes to get through. Verse 7, going back to Hosea 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. The days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad for the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred. Speaking of which is the thought of, of these people. They, they, hated the fool, they hated the prophets as fools. They hated the spiritual person as being mad. The watchman of Ephraim, Ephraim was with my God. But the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. Again, how they thought of the messengers of God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. And therefore, he will remember their iniquity. He will visit their sins. There will be recompense. There will be a repayment, or, a, or I should say a payment for their sins. So the Lord was going to pay the people back for their sins, and he cites two reasons why. First, the people were guilty of persecuting his prophets, as verses 7 and 8. The people were hostile to the Lord's true prophets, <clears throat> who preached against sin and pronounced the coming judgment of God. They didn't want to hear that, so... So they mistreated the prophets. In their, mind, in their minds, the prophets were either fools or they were insane. And even though the Lord had appointed his prophets to be the watchmen over Israel, the people were always busy seeking to entrap them and discredit them and dishonor them and disgrace them. They even showed their hostility to the prophets in the house of God, confronting them and opposing them as they proclaimed the word of the Lord. But secondly, the wicked behavior of Israel was now re rivaling the, hor the horrible wickedness of the men of Gibeah. Now, if you're not uh, aware of who they are, what you need to do is go tonight and read the book of Judges, chapters 19 and 20. Well, you, th 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 it would be the last three chapters, which is 19 through 21. Those are the last three chapters of the book. You might as well read 21. But Judges 19 and 20 in particular... The, the, the men of Gibeah were, were men who were of the tribe of Benjamin, actually. And, and those men had committed horrific crimes, which included the assault, the rape, and the murder of a Levite's concubine who happened to be their guest. And, well, the Lord's reaction to the horrendous corruption of Israel was forceful. His announcement was that he would remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins, and none of them would escape. He likened them to the, the, the very same sins of the men of Gibeah. And he would say, listen, none of you are going to escape. All the wicked sinners of the nation would be punished. Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, when did the Lord stop being the Lord? Think about the question. When did the Lord stop being the Lord? It's a rhetorical question, right? Never. He's always the Lord. But here's, the, here's a better question. When did he stop being a just and righteous God? When did he stop being a just and righteous God? I mean, there is a view in some segments of the church today that the Lord has changed over the years or centuries, but I haven't got that memo yet. I keep, yeah, I keep looking for it, but I haven't got it. The reason I haven't got it is because it isn't going to come. I've already got the memo. God is a righteous God, and he will always be a righteous God. 
God is a true God and he'll always be truth. And God is a just God and he will always be a just God. Because God never changes. One of the great attributes of our God is his immutability. That's just a fancy word for the fact that he just doesn't change. God is immutable. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. I think that's all we need to know. Right? But we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 29, this is something that actually Samuel was saying to a, to a sinful Saul who disobeyed God. And he said, And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. God is not a man that he should repent, which means he's not a man that would relent and he would not change his mind. He will always keep his mind and his will. Now what we need to understand is it doesn't mean that he isn't a merciful God, because you know what he is? He's also a merciful God. And he is a God of love. These are things that cannot change. But how many opportunities did he give the children of Israel to repent before he had to take action against them in punishing them for their stubborn, stubborn disobedience and rebellion? How many times? Time and time and time and time again, he gave them opportunity to repent, but they refused to do so. I want you to consider this statement made about the children of Judah and Zedekiah, king of Judah, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, who did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah, nor to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Listen to what it says, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> it says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Do we blame God for that? Even though he had given them compassion to return and to turn to him? Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. Suffice it to say that in these last days we need to stay considerate of the word of God as it pertains to his character, to his holiness, to his righteousness, to his mercies, to his love, as well as to his justice. I'm going to close with 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10, as well as 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Let me, let me just read 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation, to repay tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, do you notice something there? I don't want you to miss it. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to give you all two extra minutes. It's my gift to you. Okay? In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. So it is not just not knowing God. That's the major part. Look at the next phrase. And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is obedience to the gospel important for us as believers? Yes. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Let me leave you with 2 Peter 2, verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So there will be those who will be saved. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations 
So if you're going through struggles and temptations and trials, go to God, go to the Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, may God help you, strengthen you, protect you, keep you, and change you. But understand this, he also knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Why? Because he's a just God. He is a just, merciful, but a righteous God. And don't forget the words that are found in Isaiah chapter 6. The angels themselves cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's not just holy, he is holy, holy, holy. And he will always be holy. He will always be the holiest of all. 